From KGW News, this is Straight Talk with Laurel Porter. Hello and welcome to Straight Talk. I'm Laurel Porter. In this episode of Straight Talk, a conversation with Multnomah County's new district attorney, Mike Schmidt. He won in a landslide election last May. 77% of voters chose the criminal justice reform candidate, Mike Schmidt, over an experienced federal prosecutor to be the new Multnomah County DA. He thought he wouldn't take office until January, but then the DA at the time, Rod Underhill, decided to retire in August, putting Schmidt in office months early and during the heat of the racial justice protests. He was suddenly on the hot seat. Schmidt's decision not to prosecute a majority of the protest-related arrests drew fire from those who felt he was emboldening troublemakers and sending a message they wouldn't be held accountable. But from others, Schmidt got praise. Progressive leaders and those looking for criminal justice reform said his new approach was long overdue. Here with some reflections on his first six months in office and what his next plans are, including a push to repeal Measure 11 or against mandatory minimum sentencing law, Welcome to my guest, Multnomah County District Attorney Mike Schmidt. Welcome back to Straight Talk, your first time here since winning election. <laughs> Thank you, Laurel. It's great to be back with you. When Rod Underhill announced he was retiring early, you really didn't have any time to ramp up before taking office. How tough was that? Well, it was. It was challenging. It was a bit of a surprise. Um, and I had just uh, started to reach out to community members and put together a transition team. And I was looking forward to having the intervening six months to thoughtfully, uh, you know, prepare what my first days in office would be like, what policies I could roll out would be like. Uh, but then, as you say, uh, I got started on August 1st at the height of uh, what was going on after the death of George Floyd in the protests and, uh, and hit the ground running. And you really took a lot of criticism in the beginning when you announced you wouldn't prosecute low-level protest-related arrests. We're talking interfering with a police officer, disorderly conduct, criminal trespassing, things like that. Most of the protest-related arrests referred to your office have been rejected, about three-quarters of them. Many people are still upset and question that and feel you've given a green light to the small group of troublemakers that they won't be held accountable. Do you have any regrets about how you've handled that? Would, would you do anything differently? No, you know, what I did was I put together a policy that said we're going to actually focus on that small group of troublemakers. Uh, you'll recall that the vast, vast majority of people who were out and protesting in the streets were peaceful. Uh, and so what I said is I'm going to focus my office's resources on those people who are doing the harm and the damage. Uh, you know, the climate that we were in, though, we'll have to remember is uh, during a presidential election uh, where the incumbent was trying to make Portland be a centerpiece of his argument for why he should be reelected. Uh, and so I think there was a lot of confusion and misunderstandings of the policy. Uh, but when I actually speak to people and speak to community members, and I've had multiple community members like uh, Businesses for Better Portland and the Multnomah County Dems and others come out and say, this is exactly the right policy. And that's because when I sit down and talk with folks and I say, listen, this is what I'm going to focus on. If you're smashing windows, if you're lighting things on fire, that's where we want to put our resources. That doesn't that makes uh, everybody less safe, including protesters and police officers uh, where we're not going to put our resources in the middle of a pandemic when our justice system is already stressed 
is on people who are just present and want their voice to be heard. And maybe they weren't leaving fast enough when they were told to leave, but we're talking about focusing on the people who are actually doing the harm. That's public safety. So uh, I think the messaging was uh, at a challenging moment uh, at a lot of different levels, uh, but the policy was right. And I still stand by that. And, uh, and I think in the end, uh, we have done exactly that, focused our resources and we've made some gains. Well, let me let you talk to some of those folks who are still critical. A local small businessman, someone who's active in the community, told me not long ago he voted for you, but now regrets it and said he wishes he could take his vote back. What do you want to say to those people who are disappointed you haven't been more aggressive in your approach, who feel if you had been, we wouldn't have seen the months of nightly damage and confrontations with police that have many businesses in Portland still boarded up? I'm talking about people who were there but maybe showed up with helmets and shields and weapons but maybe didn't get caught on video lighting a fire. Yeah, so I think uh, to remember again uh, where I took over on August 1st, we were about 70 days, 60, 70 days into the nightly protests. Uh, so the approach we were taking had already failed. It was already not working. On day one, I had 550 arrests ready for me uh, to make a decision on what I was going to do. So that approach uh, wasn't working. So what I said was, I need to focus our resources. Uh, and usually, like I say, when I have that conversation with people, uh, you know, they understand that, that we need to look at the people who are actually doing the harm and the damage. I can't prosecute cases where we don't have uh, a suspect, an arrest, and evidence. That's just the way the criminal justice system works. Uh, so when we uh, make those cases and working with our law enforcement partners, we have made many of them, uh, we're prosecuting them. We're holding people accountable. Well, protests have died down now, but we could see more civil unrest. How much of a role do you think you and your office play in helping to bring back confidence to downtown that the plywood can come down on businesses, the fence around the federal courthouse can come down, and that those who do cause the damage will be held accountable? Do you think you play a role in that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, our office, and this is what we've been doing, uh, we need to make cases and hold people uh, responsible and accountable when they do those things, when they're causing that damage. Uh, we need to get victims restitution so that as they're putting their businesses back together, uh, they have the resources that they need to, to compensate them for the harm. So my office absolutely has a role to play. Uh, and we work with law enforcement. We work closely with PPB and the sheriff's office. Uh, and we're working together to focus on exactly those kinds of cases. And that's what we've been doing. And we've been successful at making those cases. And when you were last here, you, you pledged transparency and you now have a dashboard on your website that shows information about the number of arrests referred to your office and the ones rejected, ones where charges were filed. What do you want people to know about this dashboard? Well, you're exactly right, Laurel. When I ran, it was on transparency that the people of this community deserve to know what's going on in, in the district attorney's office and, and writ large in our criminal justice system. So what this dashboard shows is one, exactly what we've done. Uh, you know, I'm not hiding from it I, and, and I embrace it because I think it's exactly the right approach on how we're focusing this office's resources. So when you look at the dashboard and you look at the crimes where uh, we're talking about arson, uh, there's fire, or if you're talking about uh, criminal mischief, damage, uh, you can look at this and see that those are exactly the types of cases uh, we're, uh, we're prosecuting. So it's not just rhetoric. Uh, you can actually go and see exactly how we're focusing our resources to make this community safer. And I think transparency is crucial uh, to the community buying in and, and rebuilding trust and legitimacy. 
In November, on separate occasions, dozens of businesses in the Hollywood and Hawthorne districts were vandalized. Where are you on prosecutions of those crimes? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, those are examples of when people were smashing windows uh, and damaging businesses. So we're working with law enforcement, we're working with business owners, uh, and we're collecting, gathering evidence and doing investigations. Uh, and when we have enough evidence to go forward and make some arrests, uh, we'll be prosecuting those cases. Your office has seen budget cuts over the years and the number of assistant DAs is well below national staffing standards. How does that impact your ability to prosecute cases and how do you think that staffing could affect your aspirational goals of criminal justice reform? It's challenging. Uh, the staffing levels uh, certainly are a challenge. Uh, you know, when I explain it to people, the, the easiest thing for a prosecutor's office to do would be to charge people really heavily and then negotiate easy plea deals to, to give people probation. That's a good way to resolve cases as fast as possible. What I want to do as the district attorney and, and the DAs in this office want to do is we want to spend time with our cases. We want to be thoughtful. We want to craft uh, resolutions, uh, sentences that actually get at the root causes of the issue. Uh, and it's really hard to do when you're resource strapped. So uh, it's absolutely a, an area for us where, um, you know, if we had more time with cases, we could look at more things like get, diverting people into programs, treatment programs, health courts. We already do a lot of that, uh, but we would love to be able to even spend more time to make sure that we're negotiating the resolutions that actually get to the root causes of why people are in the criminal justice system in the first place. Any chance you'll get more money in the budget? Well, it's a challenging year. Um, yet again, uh, with the COVID pandemic, I think all levels of government are under financial stress. Uh, so we did just submit our budget to the county chair, uh, to their office. Uh, and so they're looking at, we were asked like every agency in the county to submit a 2% uh, constraint uh, op uh, options for reductions, uh, but then also some additions. And so we did, we put forward some additions and, and I will be work, uh, working with our commission uh, to try to um, work together and collaborate and see if there are ways that we can make investments to make our community more safe. This last six months has been tough in a lot of ways. It got personal for you at times and unsettling. You've received threats, as have other city leaders. What has that been like? Yeah, you're exactly right. And it's not just me. It's, it's leaders um, you know, across our city, uh, across our state, and across our country. It's a disturbing uh, trend that seems to really be spiking. And, and I've even seen not elected officials uh, receiving these kinds of threats. Uh, frankly, you know, it's, uh, it's a little bit unnerving at times, you know, especially uh, for my family. Uh, but I have great supports in the community. Uh, I've got great neighbors uh, who have been uh, super helpful. Uh, and so, you know, it, it is part of the job. Obviously, I would love it for people who are concerned about how the office is to run to, to come to our office instead of my house. Um, but, uh, you know, it's a, it's a challenging part of the job, no doubt. Did you have to put a fence up around your house? Yeah, uh, my neighbors uh, actually got together and uh, we built a fence uh, in the front yard just to create a space uh, between uh, the front door and, and the sidewalk to just really kind of uh, demarcate that area. Uh, gives us an extra layer of, uh, of security. And protesters may have showed up because you were doxxed, your address made public on a website. Is it true the source was someone on the Portland Police Bureau? 
Well, what we know, and I know the Portland Police Bureau is looking into that. Uh, what we know is that it showed up on a website uh, that uh, cited the Portland Police Bureau as the source. Um, you know, whether or not that's accurate, I, I obviously don't know. Uh, so the Portland Police are looking into that. Uh, they're doing internal affairs investigations. And, uh, you know, I think when I talk to police officers and I've talked to the union president, Brian Hunsecker, and and others, and, and, and we all agree, uh, you know, that's, that's absolutely not acceptable for, for anybody. Uh, and so uh, we have a good working relationship and, and uh, you know, they're looking into it. We'll see what they find. Let's talk about what you've called the most pressing public safety issue we face right now, the surging gun violence. In January this year, there are 103 shootings in Portland, more than double the number in January of 2020. The community has called for a stronger response to end the gun violence. And last week, the Portland Police Bureau announced a new investigative team to do that, the Enhanced Community Safety Team. What do you see as your role in addressing the city's escalating gun violence? We've been looking and working closely uh, with the Portland Police, with the Sheriff's Office, Gresham Police Department, our federal partners, the ATF, FBI. Uh, it really is an all-hands-on-deck moment. Uh, and my role specifically in this office is on the investigation side, but then of course the prosecution side, putting together cases. Uh, and so what we've been doing is uh, collaborating, sharing information. We do weekly shooting reviews where we're sharing information across agencies, across departments, so that we make sure that we're not looking at these as isolated incidents, but if there are things that tie different uh, crime scenes together, for example, uh, you know, shell casings, uh, things of that nature, evidence that brings them together, that we're looking at the whole picture and we're sharing information with our law enforcement partners. So this is an area where we're collaborating and, and sharing as much information as possible. And we're making cases. I was very proud and we put out a press release, uh, I think last week, uh, letting people know that we had made 26 cases in the first 18 days of February. Uh, we continue at that clip of putting together cases uh, and we're gonna be holding people accountable. And you said you want to prioritize interventions that disrupt the things that act can actually lead to gun violence. Tell us just a little bit about that. Yeah, so there really is, um, you know, by the time that we are involved in a case, a shooting's already happened. Uh, there's already a victim or people who have been traumatized by being shot at, if not hit, and sometimes unfortunately killed. That's too late. By the time it gets to us, uh, we're too late. We need to make investments upstream. Why are people involved in gun violence in the first place? Why are guns so accessible in our community? And are we doing everything we can to keep them out of the hands of people who would use them to hurt other people? Uh, so we need to make investments in community outreach, uh, in uh, people who, who reach out and interrupt violence by uh, meeting with people who might be involved uh, in gun violence or, or likely to get involved. People who show up at the hospitals, like hurt people, uh, hurt people show up to uh, meet and speak with people who have actually been uh, injured and see if we can get them the services and the help they need. So we really need to do a better job of getting as upstream as we get as we can, because like I say, by the time it gets to us, we're just putting the pieces back together. D.A. Schmidt, it's time for us to take a break. When we come back, we'll hear more from D.A. Schmidt on his plans for criminal justice reform, including repealing Measure 11, Oregon's mandatory minimum sentencing law, and his support for giving people in prison the right to vote. We're back in two minutes.
Welcome back to Straight Talk. I'm Laurel Porter. We're talking with Multnomah County's new district attorney, Mike Schmidt. He ran on a platform of criminal justice reform, and in this segment, we find out more about his plans. Once again, thank you for being here, DA Schmidt. It's great to have you. You won with 77% of the vote, a resounding mandate for criminal justice reform. So there are many people who support your approach and want to see you do bigger things with your office when it comes to criminal justice reform. And one of those big things is repealing Oregon's longstanding mandatory minimum sentencing law, Measure 11. So let's take a look at what Measure 11 is. Measure 11 is a ballot measure passed by voters in 1994. It requires mandatory minimum sentences for about two dozen crimes, including murder, serious cases of sex abuse, robbery, and other violent offenses. According to the Oregon Department of Corrections, about 47% of the state's more than 12,500 inmates are serving sentences under Measure 11. DA Schmidt, you want to see the measure repealed to give judges the flexibility to determine the sentences. Why is that? Well, Laurel, uh, the reason is because I think judges are in the best position to make that decision. Uh, prosecutors get to make charging decisions. We get to decide based on the evidence what charges a, a person we're going to bring. We bring it to the grand jury uh, and we secure indictments. When it's measure 11 charges, we're also not only choosing the charge, but we're essentially choosing what the sentence is that the person faces. I think a judge ought to decide the sentences. They're in the best position to hear arguments from the prosecution, hear arguments from the defense, uh, and then listen to the victim. And they are in a neutral position, trusted by our community, to make decisions like this all the time. In fact, we trust them with making decisions in almost every other type, in fact, every other type of criminal charge in our system. They ought to also make decisions on these serious crimes. And here you and the more progressive DAs from Wasco and Deschutes counties part ways with the Oregon District Attorneys Association on this issue. They're pressuring lawmakers to preserve Measure 11. How do you respond to those who say Measure 11 ensures justice for victims and ensures offenders will be held accountable? Well, I think that we can do both of those things uh, even when the judges decide. There's nothing magic about a prosecutor being the ones who get to decide the sentence. Uh, and ensuring justice for victims and that people are held accountable. Like I say, judges do that all the time in other crimes. So what I would say is let the judge listen to the evidence, uh, hear from all sides, including the victim, uh, and then they will pronounce a sentence in court based on the totality of all of that information. That gives us the best chance to have everything be considered, and I, I would say a just outcome for everybody. A lot of people are talking about this. You're also supporting a bill, Senate Bill 571, before the Oregon legislature right now to give convicted felons, people behind bars, the right to vote while they're in prison. As it is now, they have to wait until after they finish their sentence. Why do you think they should be able to vote when they're behind bars? Well, to me, this is a no-brainer. Uh, first of all, you look at the research. Uh, you know, when, I, when we send somebody to prison, uh, it should be because we think they can't safely be in our community uh, and that there's a punishment warranted and that, uh, that hopefully they will rehabilitate. Uh, so when you look at whether or not people should have a right to vote, all the evidence in the research says that voting is a pro-social activity. Uh, it would enable people who are otherwise spending their time locked up to learn more about civics, learn more about our government, exercise that right. Those are all things that we always say when you come back out, we hope that you can get a job and we hope that you reenter society and you're successful. 
why not introduce uh, civics lessons into uh, at a time when people are working on rehabilitation? It just makes sense. And there was actually a study out of Florida that says people who have the right to vote uh, and exercise that vote are less likely to commit future crimes. So I think really the question is, why wouldn't we do this? Well, what do you say to people who say people who commit crimes and end up in prison give up that right? And former uh, Clatsop County prosecutor Josh Marquis says they shouldn't be able to vote on things like Measure 11 or the death penalty. Well, you know, when we sentence people into a courtroom uh, after a crime, what you'll hear a, a judge talk about is how much time uh, they're gonna spend in prison. I've never heard anybody talk about, and you know, you're gonna lose your right to vote. Uh, it's not a deterrent to future crime, and it's not really even the punishment. The punishment is your loss of freedom. So why are we doing this collateral consequence? And really, when you look at the, the roots of why this became a law in many places across our country, and, and Oregon is no exception, uh, it's, there are very racist, concerning roots around Jim Crow uh, and, and other laws that prevent uh, people from voting, specifically black people, uh, from voting. So I think there are concerning racist roots to this law, and there's just no public safety reason uh, to prevent it. We're not going to be at any more risk because people vote, and who knows, when they come out, maybe they'll run for office, maybe they'll participate in our society, and isn't that what we want? Well, you also have plans for a larger conviction integrity unit focused on those who've been wrongfully convicted or maybe sentenced too harshly. Where are you on that? And can you give us an example of a case that might be addressed in that unit? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, put in my budget request to the county commission uh, to help uh, fund the formation of this conviction integrity unit. Uh, it would work on all kinds of things. Typically, uh, too often, I'd say prosecutor's offices, we look at the front end, right? We read the police reports, we make charging decisions, and then we take them to sentencing. And for the most part, we're pretty much done with the case. I think we need to go past that. I think we need to look more holistically at our system. You know, even with the best intentions, sometimes we make mistakes. We know that. There are tons of examples across our country and even in the state of Oregon uh, where we have made mistakes and we got the wrong person in jail or prison. Uh, so we absolutely need to do uh, everything we can to make sure that even when we make mistakes in good faith, we're doing everything we can to correct them. But we can go farther than that. If people serve their sentence and they do everything right and they're trying to get back into, uh, into the community, get a job, get housing, get loans for education, all those things, we can help them by uh, getting rid of old convictions in terms of getting those convictions expunged. Uh, maybe even looking at forgiving fines and fees so that people can get back on their two feet. So it's kind of uh, when people are doing the right things, when they've served their sentence, how do we help uh, eliminate some of those barriers that they face for having been a part of the criminal legal system? I'll give you one example. Uh, there's, a, there's a case on my desk right now of a man who was convicted uh, over 25 years ago of delivery of cocaine. He's a black man. Uh, and, you know, he can't get that expunged off his record because of the way of our expungements laws, laws are. I'd like to see that change. I think after 25 years of not being involved in the criminal legal system, what's the point of preventing him from getting some of those things, housing and, and loans and, and all of the benefits, jobs uh, that he can get? There's no public safety reason for that. We're almost out of time, but I want to give you about 30 to 45 seconds to leave a final thought with our viewers. 
Yeah, thanks, Laurel. Thanks for having me. Uh, you know, my final thought is that we're in a hopeful place. You know, when I started at the height of uh, the, the, what was happening this summer with the protests, the community was demanding action. And as you said, I was elected overwhelmingly to change the way our criminal justice system works. And we're doing that. We're working on things. And sometimes it's small changes, but they can have big impacts, looking at how we handle misdemeanors, uh, affects an enormous amount of people. So I'm very hopeful about where things are going. And as this pandemic hopefully recedes and things start moving again, uh, I look forward to partnering with the community and partnering with our other actors in the system to make sure that we are having one of the best criminal justice systems locally here in Multnomah County that we can. Well, we wish you the best of luck. Thank you, District Attorney Mike Schmidt, for joining us here on Straight Talk. And thank you for watching and listening. Remember, you can get Straight Talk now as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for KGW Straight Talk. Join us next week when the Executive Director of the Port of Portland joins us. Curtis Robinhold talks about the port's plan to share the wealth with people of color, the poor, and the marginalized. We'll see you next week for Straight Talk.